Now let's open this precious word that we have to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 14. Hebrews 9, you have a Bible or you want to take one from the pew rack there underneath the pew in front of you. And while you're turning, may I encourage you all to join in the memory challenge for 1997. This is something God's doing. I was absolutely blown away that 760 people signed up for this. I was blown away. I expected maybe half of that. My faith was incredibly small. This is something God is doing. God wants this on us for 1997. And so don't don't be on the fringes saying, wow, look at all those people memorizing Bible verses every week. Come on in and be a part of it. And if you have to, sit in the balcony so you'll be safe. Really, it's going to be wonderful. It's just going to be wonderful as we minister to each other. I hear it in the prayers. I hear it in small groups. The packets are available out in the ministry hall. Let's read verses 1 to 14 of Hebrews chapter 9. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand, the table, and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. And behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of covenant. And above it, were the cherubim of of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed, while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, Both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your consciences from dead works to serve the living God? 
Father, our heart's desire, I know hundreds as I read this and as they hear it, our heart's desire is that consciences this morning would be cleansed. That this verse 14 would be performed. Not just read about, not just preached upon, not just thought about, not even memorized, but performed by the Holy Spirit among us as the glorious blood shedding of Jesus is applied to consciences in this room which are defiled. So, Lord, let that be the upshot and the glorious outcome of this morning's ministry, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, I'm a very modern person. Can't escape that, even though I love the old-timey writers and get most of my feeding from centuries Two, three hundred years ago, I'm a very modern person. I punch away at my computer and I ride in an automobile and I take jets and I talk on telephones and I use videos and this electricity is carrying my voice. I'm under these lights. I'm a very modern person. And therefore, when I read this text, it is weird. It's weird. It's, it's old. It's foreign. It's distant. Because I read it like a modern person, and so do you. And if we're honest, we just have to say, boy, when you read texts like this, you just come up for airs gasping and saying, give me a breath of the 20th century, because I don't have a clue what's going on here with all this gold and all these tents and all this bread and tables and cherubim and rods. And what in the world is this stuff? I think that's a natural Response to an ancient text like this. Now, the question is, if that's the way we read, what are we going to do about it? This is the word of God. How shall we respond to those feelings that inevitably come up? And there are three ways to respond, I think. More than that, maybe. But here are the three I thought of that helped me get my bearings and decide how I think this writer wants us to respond. Number one, and the first two are bad, okay, bad. But I give them to you because they're common. Response number one would be to say, that is so strange, so foreign. These rituals, these priests, this blood, these animals, these tables, this bread, these candles, these curtains, these cherry beans is so weird, so foreign, so outside my experience, it can't have any relevance for me in the 20th century, and therefore I will look to something more contemporary and forget that. That's one way. Those don't read the book of Hebrews or think about that time in history. Here's the second possibility. You might be a little more sophisticated and say, well, you know, what really matters in life is not historical, changeable realities, but eternal, unchanging truths above history, which in every generation come to partial expression so that there must be something of eternal, unchanging reality that might be dimly reflected in these things. And so I will look for the eternal truths in these contingent realities of history. If you were sophisticated, you might talk like that. 
That's not a good way to approach it. And you'll see why in a minute. Here's the third way. It's the way I think this writer wants us to approach it. And I'll show you why in a minute. You would step back and you would say, I believe in a God who is sovereign over history and who rules and governs and by his providence arranges and guides all sequential historical periods of time. And being the ruler and guide over each period, he shapes it according to his purposes. And each one leads to another according to God's purposes. And none is in vain. And therefore, I should think about that period of history and the way God related to people there as significant. It's not my period, but it's significant. God did that. It didn't just happen. And he did it leading to something, and it sheds light on that, and that sheds light back on that. And I should try to understand things in the flow of God's self-revelation in history. Why did he do that? And what did he do next? And what's he doing today? And how's today relate back there? And you think about the providence of God. <clears throat> history is not merely a bad shadow of unchanging eternal realities. <clears throat> That's not a good way to think about history. History is the work of God into which God comes. He comes. His word comes in history, in the Old Testament. His acts. And then his son comes into history. And history is where we get saved, folks. If we don't connect with a certain movement in history, we're not going to be saved from our sin and be with God in eternity. History is really important. Really important. So those first two ways, oh, it's irrelevant, it's too old, it's too distant and too foreign, can't have anything to do with that. I just think about modern writers and modern things, modern events. Or, well, the only thing that matters is kind of timeless, eternal Truths that may dimly get reflected there, and so I'll just kind of bounce off of those up into those. History matters. God is moving through history, and these things, these changes in history are very important. Now, let me take you to the text and show you why I got this idea. Where did I get this idea that the writer wants us to think in those terms? Well, let's start at the beginning. And just very quickly, look how he sets things up in verses 1 to 7. All verses 1 to 7 are is the facts that set you up for the interpretation. Verse 1, there's a sanctuary, earthly sanctuary. Verse 2, uh, it had an outer part with a lampstand and a table and some bread called the holy place. Verses 3 to 5, there was another room behind the second curtain called the holy of holies. And back there was an altar. And in it... It was like a chest, and in it there was some sacred relics. And above the altar, these carved cherubim. Then verse 6, after all the furnishings are in place here, he describes the activity, and he says, In that outer room, the priests went in and out all the time. And they were doing acts of worship that were appropriate for the people at that time. And then, in verse 7, the high priest, once a year goes back through that second curtain to the Holy of Holies where the glory of God comes. He goes with blood for his own sins, for the sins of the people, and he makes reconciliation for a year's worth of sinning. 
So the, the point seems to be that uh, God is way back there in the back room. And you don't get to him ever if you're just a hoi polloi citizen. And the high priest, get, I mean, the priest get a little closer in the holy place. And then the high priest, he gets all the way in and he goes shuddering with his hands full of an animal's blood to cover himself and others. Now, that's a pretty, that's a pretty bleak way of relating to God. It's way far away. Now, verse 8 picks up the interpretation. He says, the Holy Spirit is signifying this. Now, isn't it interesting, just this little parenthesis here, that he says the Holy Spirit is signifying something. This writer just assumes the inspiration of the Old Testament. This is a very strong word for us here. If you wonder about how the New Testament writers view the Old Testament, here is a strong word that when you read about all these things in the book of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Exodus, he says, the Holy Spirit is signifying, not just Moses. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Now that is very important. A reference to time. The outer tabernacle symbolizes the present time. The, the, whatever that writer meant by the present time, that time is characterized by distance, by ritual, by sacrifices, by earthly priesthood, by blood, and by only a representative getting to go all the way into intimacy with the glory. That's the present time. That's what this time is like. And we can't say that time is unimportant. That's the time. The season that he's talking about called the present time. What is it? Is that our time? Keep reading and you're going to see another amazing reference to time that brings us up short and makes us say, hmm, maybe the present time isn't present anymore. Verse 9 in the middle, pick it up. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed, now look at this, imposed until a time of reformation, or the NIV, a time of the new, a new ordering of things. The, 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 it's a rare Greek word, it's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. A setting straight, a bringing of things into line, a, a new system, new order, a way of relating to God and each other, something new. And he says that this old way, this seems so strange and so foreign and so distant, is in fact strange, is distant, is foreign, and God means it to fall away when the time, a time, of reformation comes. And the big question is, when's that? 
When what divides what he calls in verse 9 the present time. And now, verse 10 at the end, a time of reformation or new order. Well, here's my answer to when that happened. And you can see right as the next verse starts in verse 11. But when Christ appeared, the whole book of Hebrews is written to describe the move from the one to the other. That's what this book is all about. The present time marked by the outer tabernacle representing ritual distance from God and having to have human representatives and do it all through animal blood and not being able to get into intimacy except through that. That's the present time. And now Christ comes... And so alters things that a reformation, a reordering of reality, as it were, a reordering of how you get to God, a reordering of how you worship, just everything was changing, it seemed, with Christ and a, and a reformation. Get out of your head. If, if you struggle like I did with this text, when I read that word reformation, I said, first thing that comes to my mind every time I hear the word reformation is Martin Luther. John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli. you got to get that out of your brain here because he's not talking about that. When it says a reformation or the reformation, he doesn't mean the 16th century. He means Jesus coming into the world as the Son of God, as the high priest who ends all the sacrifices, ends all the priesthood, ends all the ritual, and establishes a new order. That's what he's talking about in this book and in this shift from the present time, verse 9, to the Reformation, verse 10. Now, the question I ask, though, is why did he call it the present time if he's writing 20, 30, 40 years after the death of Jesus? I think the answer is given in verse 13 of chapter 8. It's the, it's the verse that precedes and leads into chapter 9, which we read. You know the chapter divisions are not there in the original. They can be very misleading if you stop in a place you shouldn't stop. I really should have probably read verse 13 to help us get ready for these verses. But let's read it now. When he said, now this is a reference back to God speaking about the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31, which was just quoted. When God said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now the first covenant is the Mosaic covenant, the ordering of the present time with the tabernacle and the bread and the candles and the table and the blood and the altar and the chariot beam. And the priesthood, that's the old order. That's the old covenant. When he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming, now notice the language, is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So he talks like it's a a process rather than... One second, and the one stops and the other starts. Now, why is he talked that way? I think the reason he talks that way is because it took 70 years for it to happen, roughly. Christ comes into the world as the high priest. 
He offers up his life as the sacrifice. He enters into the Holy of Holies in heaven once for all with an eternal sacrifice. Eternal redemption. Now we're in about 30 A.D. The temple is still standing. The sacrifices are still being made in Jerusalem. Remember Jesus drove out the money collectors who sold their sold their animals. It was all still happening in Jesus' day. So he's done. He's done his work. He's leveled the blow. The axe is laid to the root of the tree. And he's back in heaven. Now what? The word starts to spread. Stephen gets himself killed by announcing that this temple is over. And there's this cleavage that begins and they don't know quite how to handle it. Are we Jews or aren't we Jews? Is the church part of Israel? Is it not part of Israel? Is this wrenching? And then in 70 AD, God ends it with the Romans. And the temple is leveled by Titus, the Roman general. And there have been no Jewish sacrifices since. So even if they refuse to recognize what happened in Jesus, God forced the end. He forced it. So that a council was held in 90 AD in Jamnia among the Jewish rabbis saying, Who are we? And what shall we now be and do? Our temple is gone. The animal sacrifices are gone. Do we reconstitute a priestly order? Do we have sacrifices in Corinth and Athens and Alexandria? What does it mean to be Jewish anymore? I mean, this was a mega crisis. And they hit upon reinterpretations that if you go over to Temple Israel today or to Temple Aaron and ask rabbis and ask Jews, where are the animal sacrifices? Where's the tabernacle? Where's the Holy of Holies? Where? How do you obey the Torah? They will give you reinterpretations that enable their present contemporary modern religious traditional experience fulfill those forms with a different thing. It's the only possibility there was. God said history is changing. And the Christians saw it in Jesus and knew why it was changing, because the high priest had come. The Jewish people, by and large, didn't get it, and God stopped it by destroying the temple. So the point here is that the way to understand strangeness when you read it is not, it's irrelevant, or only eternal truths matter. But rather, that period was important for what God was doing in the economy of history. And now, recognize that it was all pointing not just up to eternal truths, but forward to a reality in history. Not just up to something there in the ethereal, but forward to a real human being who would end all animal sacrifices, end all the priesthood, end the tabernacle, the ritual the feast days, circumcision, would all be consummated in Jesus. Now, this is really relevant for us, and I'll just point out one thing as we draw to an end here. Why is this so relevant to us who are modern people? I feel my modernity so keenly some days. 
Computers just blow me away. Email. For the first time this week, I, I did an email with a voice. So the person talked to me, you know, with the email. Just punch it and on the Internet. They gave me a message about the abortion um, veto, which I'm going to talk about next week, by the way, on Pro-Life Sunday. So I'm, I'm, I'm just always amazed at computers, and I feel so modern over against the Bible. But you know what? The reason this old text is relevant for us is because the one thing that all of our medical discoveries and our scientific advances and our technological prowess have not touched is a guilty conscience. What scientific theory, what psychological therapeutic mechanism, what invention has had any bearing on how to clean our conscience so that we can come home to the Father? I mean, you spend an evening, say, in front of the computer, wasting your life, addicted, as it were, either to video games or some new fandangle finance program or pornography. And then you try to pray before you go to bed. Or you try to look your wife in the face and say, I love you. And have given you this evening what you should have from me. And you will know that modernity doesn't have any bearing on the big problems of life. The big issues of life is, God, how can I get my conscience clean when I've lived my life so long defiled and still defile it? And how can I be reconciled to my loved ones so that I can really look at them and with authenticity experience some intimacy when I'm so dirty inside? That's the same problem today as it has been for 10,000 years and will be until Jesus comes. That's the issue. It doesn't matter whether we have a 911 or whether we have spaceships going to Mars or whether we have antibiotics, or whether we have faxes and emails, those things don't have any bearing on life that matters. How do you get right with God when you got a dirty conscience? And how do you restore relationships so that they're oh, what they meant to be when there's been so much alienation through sin? I was really, I was really helped yesterday thinking about how inconsequential modernity is. Don't be tricked. Don't be tricked by people who talk about how far we've come in science since the Industrial Revolution or since the Enlightenment. And how can you believe an old-fashioned religion? Just kind of look at them blank and say, I don't get what you're saying. What you're saying makes no sense to me at all because my faith is not about whether you are bothered by a chariot wheel or a computer, but whether you have a guilty conscience with what you've done with your chariot wheel and your computer. Tell me what you do with that. 
How do you get right with the Creator God for whom these are all toys that He can make or dispense with at His will? And the answer, the glorious answer is right here in our text. It is so good. Let me read these last verses with you and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. I want to read verses 11 to 14 one more time. And as I read them, I have prayed and I pray right now, Lord, I pray it that, that you would do these verses for these people in this room. This is the way, this is the way God works. When the word is spoken, the holy inspired word of God, the Holy Spirit takes it and makes it live with life changing power. So many of you are defiled right now. You blew it last night. You really blew it. You came to church this morning. You could hardly talk to each other in the car. You just blew it with the kids yesterday, today, way out of line in the way you talked to them. You've done it with some things at work this week. It wasn't quite open and above board the way it was supposed to be. Didn't set a good example for Christ. You feel dirty right now. You could hardly sing. When we were singing at the beginning, you, you looked around and people had their eyes shut. They looked like they were communing with God and you felt so dirty. You felt a hundred miles away from God. No way. Could you sing and you're sitting there right now and God could do it. That's what this is about. So I'm going to read it and let's just all be praying that as I read it, he'd do it. Cleanse our conscience. When Christ appeared, this is verse 11, when Christ appeared, now that's the inauguration of this new order or reformation. As a high priest of good things to come, and they've come now through him. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. We're talking now the infinite valuable blood of the Son of God. He entered the holy place once for all. That's the true tabernacle in heaven where he's gone with his blood. Having obtained eternal redemption, not yearly, but eternal. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. That's all that could happen with animals. Animals God accepted as ceremonial cleansing, but not conscience cleansing. How much more? Now, here's the key verse. Add this to your memory stock. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? They knew, you know and I know, that the blood of animals doesn't cleanse anybody's conscience. People all over the world today are desperate to have a clean conscience. You can cut yourself with knives. You can throw your baby into the sacred river in Papua New Guinea. You can give a million dollars to the United Way. You can serve at a soup kitchen on Thanksgiving. And you'll feel like that scene in Hamlet. Damn spot! Get out of me! And it won't go. There's nothing you can do. You know it. And that's why verse 14 is glorious. It's just glorious. Do you want relief in life and peace in death? We just had another woman delivered a death sentence yesterday. 
Gerda Moline was told an inoperable cancer in her colon and an operable one in her stomach. Now put yourself in Gerda's place. We can't operate on this. What at that moment will you want more than anything besides healing? You will want cleanness before God. You will want the terror of meeting a holy God to be lifted from you that you might die in peace if you must die. And it's offered, folks. It's offered. I have a free gift for you this morning. It's in verse 14. And it is cleansing of your conscience apart from your effort. You can't do anything to get your conscience clean. And therefore God comes to do what you could not do. Putting his own son to death. That by his blood, apart from any merit or any worth of your own, he might bathe your conscience clean so that you can lie there and say, I have led a life of sin. Like that thief on the cross. I'm so sinful. All I've ever done is sin. Is there hope for me? And because of the blood, you can hear the words today. You will be with me in paradise. Is that good news? Let's pray. Let's take a minute here and deal with the Lord. Some of us will stand here at the end and love to pray with you about anything in your life. But you know, walking up here and praying with me or one of the prayer teams is not necessary to experience salvation or to be cleansed afresh. It is a matter of the heart's reception. Do you love this? Do you believe this? Will you take this? Will it become your treasure? Will you feed on it? Will it be your life? Or will you say, well, I'm really not so bad. My conscience is not so bad. and There's really no condemnation because God's a loving God. Father, I pray that you draw near now and cause people to turn. Just turn to Christ. Turn to him. Look to him. All the cleansing you'll ever need is found in the blood of Jesus, and it is completely sufficient. Lord, dismiss us into this bitter cold day, cleansed. Lord, cleanse us as we go. We receive it. We take it. We say yes to it. You are our life. You are our relief now and our peace in death. You are our only hope. Your blood is all we need. Thank you. We receive it. Amen.